0: Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dowzycki.
1: And I'm Landry Ayers.
0: Mrs. America is on our menu for today. And no, I don't mean the beauty pageant. The latest hit on Hulu masterfully tells the story of the movement to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, also known as the ERA, that occurred throughout the 1970s. The notorious Phyllis Schlafly is one of the main characters, and we see her clash with second-wave feminists like Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem, here to unwrap everything that happened during this pivotal time in history is Libertarianism.org's own tech and innovation editor, as well as the host to the Building Tomorrow podcast, Paul Matzko.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute, David Bose.
2: Thanks for glad having me here.
0: And last but not least, the Executive Director of Feminists for Liberty, Kat Murdy. Thanks for having
3: me. Glad to join.
1: Uh, I have a question that might seem simple at first, but could possibly uh, raise some conflict. Who is the eponymous Mrs. America?
4: Ooh, that's a great question, Landry. Yeah, so obviously the, you know, one impulse is to say, well, it must be uh, uh, Kate Blanchett's Phyllis Schlafly. Like, is that Mrs. America? But, you know, she's only half. I mean, you have this parallelism being built into the structure of the show where there's Phyllis schlafly and her coterie of supporters on the one side and then you know Biddy Ferdan Gloria Steinem and, and others on the other who also could be called Mrs America right they're equal protagonists in a sense or equal they get equal uh screen time um or is Mrs America everyone involved totally i mean is it, is it a, is it a function of Um, All women represented on the show as a stand-in for women across America.
3: I hadn't thought about this until you brought up this question. I very much thought uh, Mrs. America was Phyllis Schlafly, which the story, she sort of frames the story, right? But your point is great. Mrs. America also represents the fact that the period we're talking about, women's social status very much came from being a Mrs., which is something we see throughout and you kind of see the way the show sets it up, um, it sets up Gloria Steinem, editor of Ms. Magazine, not Mrs., as the foil. And it's and so it's actually really interesting to think of that as Phyllis Schlafly being the voice of this America where a woman's social status comes from her marriage and comes from those kinds of things against this new feminist America where a woman's social status isn't the primary determining factor of who she is and what she can do in her life.
4: Well, in the show, the the, the showrunner, or I guess the writer uh, in this case, there very much is this um, through line throughout all the kind of individual character arcs, which is tension over their relationships with their significant others, uh, whether they're... Um, boyfriend or husband whether it they're gay or straight that's a constant through each of them so in a sense each of the women in this story is having to decide for themselves whether what it means to be a woman and uh, be in a relationship in america mrs america Miss america what does that mean so that's there as well i think on your point kat uh, which is well made is the importance of uh of marriage in making claims on the politics of respectability in 1960s America, um, I'll, I'll say this, which is whenever you're in the archives for a conservative woman of the 1960s, and I've I've spent a little bit of time, I've seen Schlafly, some of Schlafly's papers, uh, uh, women who write into other conservative archives for some of the people I write about, they almost invariably if they are married they is they they put the misses, they put those three letters in front of their name uh, whereas men are much 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 less likely to put mister in their letters and that's because it's a way in the in the politics of the time in that milieu it's a way of making a claim on the body politic it's a claim to a respectable status you know whether or not and th- this is a descriptive comment not a normative comment this you know i don't think that's the way it necessarily should be but it's the way it was in the 60s it was a way of saying um i have uh, a stable life a stable situation i am a a, a stable citizen of this republic and so i have a claim to public attention and so what that means is that that conveys power so respectability politics it conveys power and gives um people extra standing. And the irony of it is that it's not just a stop ERA power, a thing that they can avail themselves of, you know, Phil Schlafly's side. It's also a claim to power that was useful for uh, the the more overtly feminist side. Uh, Especially, you think back during the first wave of women's, uh, first wave feminism, women's suffrage uh, earlier on in the century, when uh, getting the vote for women was, uh, if you look at the congressional debates and the debates in the papers of the time, it was all about, we need respectable women to have votes so they can clean up politics. And so that's very much part of the, um, uh, I think that's baked into the Mrs. America as well. Like, what do those letters represent as a claim on uh, the body politic?
3: That's absolutely true. And I think uh, if you're going to talk about voting history, something else that's interesting is a big part of the argument against women getting the vote was that- (laughs) Of course, a family would have the same vote. So if you give married, if you give women the vote, then they're only ever going to vote the same as their husband. So you're just saying that their family unit gets two votes, right?
4: Yeah, yeah, that was assumed. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Right, exactly. But I, I this is actually fascinating <laughs> uh, the way that you're talking about it because the entire concept be- behind Ms. Magazine that title was that prior to that point, women were a miss or a misses, and Yes, that confirmed uh, sort of respectability. And there was a lot of social and cultural aspects to that, right? But there's also yeah. a lot of legal aspects that change with whether a woman was married or not. And so this very much was the source of who she was. And that's why you see even the women who are on the feminist side, um, you know, Gloria Steinem, she, she goes by Ms. She doesn't want to get married, even though she's very clearly in what is essentially a married relationship, right? Uh, but you see mm-hmm. all of these other women like Shirley Chisholm says, I'm Mrs. Shirley Chisholm. You see, um, you see all of them kind of like struggling with this relationship of what it means to be married and understanding that the, their marriage, their stable marriage in their life was helpful to them, but also because of this larger construct holds them back in a way.
0: I think a big part of understanding this show and kind of seeing the real value in it is understanding the time period. So I think we might want to take a step back and just make sure our audience is a little bit, is clear on what time period and kind of what the role of the uh, female was, especially in politics during this time. So can anyone kind of elaborate on maybe how many many women were working full-time in this time period during the 70s? And also a big thing that came up throughout the show was Um, I remember Phyllis Schlafly was talking about how she's never felt discriminated because of her sex. But do you think a typical woman in this time period had felt discriminated against because of their sex?
4: Yeah, I mean, there's... um, I mean, if you look at the... I mean, I I can just speak to the historical statistics. So by the 60s, women's labor force participation is still below 50%. So um, a majority of working age women... Uh, our housewives at, at the in the 1960s so kind of the very early end of this show but that the ratio um uh s- surpasses 50 percent surpasses kind of the 50 percent mark in uh late 60s by 1970 a majority of women um uh, of working age are in the labor force the formal labor force and um and so we're seeing this real moment of the transition. And, and today, labor force participation between men and women is, is relatively similar and uh, still slightly depressed. So we're in this very transitional moment.
2: Right. So it's not the case that women never worked back then, as you say, under 50 percent, but not too much under 50 yeah. percent. All my school teachers pretty much were women. Nurses were women. Um, there were women doing working in retail and so on. The change in women being in professional life, um, prominent women, um, I think is is much more visible and significant. And I, I looked at some figures on politics when Geraldine Ferraro died back in 2011. And I know all of y'all are too young to remember the 60s and the 70s. So I'm telling you, <laughs> it was indeed a huge revolution. It was A a complete change that happened very quickly, actually, in the late 60s through the late 70s, I think. When I wrote about Geraldine Ferraro's death, one of the things I noticed was, as of the time of this show, no woman had ever been elected to the United States Senate unless her husband had been a member of Congress. In 1978, Nancy Landon Kassebaum became the first woman elected to the Senate who didn't follow her husband into politics. But of course, her father had been a prominent politician. And it was not until 1980 that a woman from Florida, a conservative woman called the housewife from Maitland, Paula Hawkins, became the first woman not to succeed a male relative uh, in getting into the Senate. Now there are 25 women in the U.S. Senate. Uh, There's about 23 percent of the House of Representatives. A woman is Speaker of the House. Women are 33 percent of the Supreme Court. Women are 57 percent of college students. All of that is different uh, from the way it was up through the sixties. And so in that sense, um, they didn't get the ERA, but I think the, 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 the women in the show, the feminist women made the revolution that they wanted to make. And I'm sure they did not feel and still don't feel that it's been complete. Uh, but it has been an amazing social revolution and, Phyllis Schlafly, I think, knew that. Well, that brings up an
1: interesting point, David, and something that you had made note of before our discussion started in your notes I had, I had seen is that you thought at the end of the series, in, in the final scenes after that we learned the ERA has failed to be ratified, um, the tone of the show seems to, to suggest that both Schlafly and the ERA supporters both feel like they have failed – in some way, or or lost, and do you think that they did in that way, or did someone come out a winner, or
2: both? I think that political activists always feel like they're losing. They always feel like they are the beleaguered minority. Conservatives always often talk about being the remnant. We're the, we're the last people believing in the Bible and the Constitution in a world that's gone socialist and welfare statist. Uh, but the left feels that way too. And, you know, as a libertarian over the years, I have, from time to time, attended conservative strategy meetings and lefty strategy meetings. And what you find in both of them is the perception that the other side is so incredibly well organized. It's like a war machine. And here we are. We're always arguing with each other. And we don't have any of those things they have. Um, so I think both sides probably did feel that they had lost now the suggestion in the last scene really is that phyllis schlafly didn't get what she personally wanted from the reagan administration like a cabinet position which i don't recall her really being talked about as a candidate for but i did look back in some old newspapers and found that yeah there were references to maybe phyllis schlafly in the cabinet but i don't think she was a a credible candidate for that The feminists felt Ronald Reagan got elected, so we obviously lost. Um, So, yeah, in a sense, they they both felt that way. Um, I think the feminists actually had won a great deal more than they realized, and they were depressed about Reagan. But in fact, Reagan became the first president to name a woman to the Supreme Court, And here we are 40 years later. And although there are some elements of Reagan's presidency, like lower tax rates, that are still the case, um, progress of women has continued ever since Reagan was elected and and before that. I'll add to that, that, um, you know,
4: we tend to overrate the significance of formal legislation when it comes to cultural change. Uh, It's not that it doesn't play a role. It does. Um, But we have, uh, I think, as Dave is describing we have a cultural sea change taking place, um, regardless of whether or not ERA passes. And, and the ERA itself was always um, more important as a symbol of change rather than as an instrument of change. Uh, in, in general, the arguments for its transformative potential were exaggerated by both sides, because it's, it's always politically convenient to exaggerate both the possibilities the good things that could happen from legislation and the potential threats it's just that's the nature of politics is to blow things out proportion but much of what was um uh you know the threat like if uh they put this in the show where uh there's this debate over whether or not because of the ra women would have to be drafted um that wasn't seriously on the table um you would, I mean, it could have enacted legislation after the ERA mandating that women be drafted, but it would not have instantly happened because of the ERA. Um, even today, if the ERA passes, it probably doesn't meaningfully move the needle except in some uh, – probably in like kind of domestic abuse cases. It might move the needle in terms of like the weight of jurisprudential uh, like uh, reasoning when it comes to the, the, the various standards of, of evidence required, the hurdles that have to be overcome, but it's, it's not going to be a fundamental sea change of the ERA passed in the next couple of years. Cause again, there's a push to uh, re-litigate the ERA. Um, but that said, I mean, symbols matter. Symbols are important for generating political activism and generating social movement action. And so both sides seize on this relatively, um, uh, needle moving, um, Piece of legislation and blow it up into a kind of existential crisis for the uh, situation for women in America. One other thing I'll note, and I, I think this is interesting. It's it's that Phyllis Schlafly and Betty Friedan. They're they're actually a great pair here because both of them come from middle class Midwestern homes. Um, they uh, have kind of a similar life trajectory. They're of s- similar ages, and. Um, the and they both go to college, they both get uh, you know, they're both educated, they both are in the workforce, and then they're and they both challenge glass ceilings in multiple ways, and then their lives diverge, but both of them were doing something that had become the norm uh that precedes the kind of societal changes that that David's been describing in the 60s and 70s. Because before Women break the kind of glass ceiling on professional uh, – in the professions, in law, in – well, in in government, in college, uh, accounting and and medicine, et cetera. Before that happens, there's a lag. There's a lag between women uh, taking the kind of necessary preconditions to get there, going to medical school, going to law school going to college in the first place, um, having some experience in the workforce. And so you can see that in Schlafly herself. She goes to college during the 1940s, goes to Radcliffe uh, because of its connections to Harvard. Um, She gets a master's degree in in government. She goes to DC and works for a think tank for the predecessor of uh, the American Enterprise Institute. All things that were in their own way, kind of radical at the time, but that set her up for, uh, kind of, you know, to, to try to get into Congress, etc. Same thing for, for Betty Friedan breaking into journalism long before she wrote uh, The Feminine Mystique. And so in a sense, the sea change we saw in the 60s and 70s, the first waves start coming in 20 years, 30 years earlier.
3: So I think there's something really interesting in the parallel you drew between Betty Friedan and uh, Phyllis Schlafly. Because one of my frustrations with Phyllis Schlafly has always been that I see her as a hypocrite. Because she's fundamentally, she's kind of a feminist, uh, even as she rails against feminism. But -hmm. before we get into that, I actually want to go back to your earlier point about the value that they're placing on legislation and how much, and and you see that with the show. The show is about, nominally about the ERA and that's what's happening, but the actual stories and the actual changes and all of that is cultural. And I think that that's true of both sides. They sort of, they're overvaluing uh, the role of government or governance in cultural change. And, you know, I'm a libertarian feminist. I believe that culture matters. Obviously a legal system matters as well because it can shape that. But, you know, on both sides, you see this wonderful quote from Shirley Chisholm in there. She says um, when she's being asked why she supports the ERA. And she says, the truth is women have never been protected from working as waitresses at night when the tips are large. But uh, women have been protected from working as waitresses at night when the tips are large. But they have never been protected when they're working as char women scrubbing floors all night. We don't need anyone to protect us. And you see this parallel even from Fred Schlafly when he's uh practicing um, with Celis for the debate. And she talks about how she's anti-ERA because uh, housewives should be mothers and they shouldn't have to be forced to support their family. And he says, when your father lost his job, did the law protect your mother? Did the law keep her from having to work two jobs to support your family? And that's the thing. They're using it as this meter of where change is and what's happening, but fundamentally they care about culture and the changes mm. we've seen on both sides come from the culture, not so much from a top-down legisl- legislation.
4: So you're, you're, um, I, I was going to ask at some point, and I used to do this in when I would teach America in the 1960s. I would ask the students, you know, they'd read a little bit of Phyllis Schlafly uh, with a stop era speech i'd have them read a debate from the 1920s over the first attempt to pass the era between between two two feminists two well suffragettes they would have called themselves at the time between two suffragettes one for and one against uh the initial equal rights amendment um and have the i mean they could see the parallels and so then i ask them is phyllis schlafly a feminist and uh you know lively debate always ensues so you, so you would say yes, she is. Um, uh maybe can you unpack that a little bit more i mean i mean i'm interested i actually tend to agree but in a sense
3: yeah absolutely uh this has always been my greatest frustration with phyllis schlafly to be honest i just get the sense of hypocrisy from her right because she's built this career upon this idea that women belong in the home they shouldn't have a career they shouldn't and that has been this Massive career was still sustained. You know, I was born in the late 80s and I've seen Phyllis Schlafly speaking at political events, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's definitely that aspect. There's this great scene um, right before, uh, uh, when the Stop the ERA women go to potentially become delegates at at the Women's Convention, right? And a couple of them run into Bella Abzug backstage. And there's this great conversation where, She says, um, you know, she says, let me tell you about Phyllis Schlafly. She's a liar. She's a fearmonger and she's a con artist. But worst of all, she's a, excuse me, she's a a goddamn feminist. She might be one of the most liberated women in America, which is true over and over and over. You see her say this, you know, someone says, I'm just a housewife. And she says, no one is just a housewife. Right uh mm-hmm. brenda feigen fasto when they have the couples debate tells her you're not really a housewife you're a full-time lobbyist which is true she is she's advocating for herself she tells her husband you can't stop me from going to law school she she's the only woman in the room going into those rooms where people want to treat her like a secretary or things like that and she's still pushing her ideas she's still fighting back against them right and, yeah. <clears throat> and with this scene with bella abzug um these women, um, you know, Alice McRae, I want to talk about her later, but she's there <laughs> saying, you don't know anything about Phyllis. Um, she taught everything we learned, we learned from her. And Phyllis says, what did you learn from her? Uh, has she taught you how to lobby legislators? Has she taught you how to draft a press release or a speech? Has she taught you how to answer reporters, get the television in- interview, how to create a budget, balance it? And on every line there, yes, yes, yes. And she says, congratulations, you're working girls. And it's true. I mean, she essentially took that identity of being a housewife and then transformed it into a full-time profession and very much with these kind of very feminist ideas, even if they're sort of packaged in this anti-feminist thing. And you see that when those same women get the delegate seats and uh, Phyllis Schlafly says that they should just not show up to protest it. And one of them says, but the government's paying us. So it's kind of like we have a job. Right. And they started this whole movement to campaign against this idea that they should have to have jobs.
2: Um, It seems to me, you know, if you're going to ask, is Phyllis Lafley a feminist? You have to have a definition of feminism. Is a feminist uh, a person who supports the official feminist agenda? If it is, then Phyllis isn't one. If a feminist is a woman who acts as if she's as smart and capable as a man, then Phyllis, Phyllis is definitely a feminist. Um, we, we have to remember some of these scenes that we're talking about may not have really happened. Um, in my experience, uh, checking, checking on the accuracy of this, most of the things that can be fact-checked um, easily, they're accurate. Um, there really was this debate. There really was the uh, feminist woman with the man who then discovered that she really preferred women, um, those kinds of things. But attitudes, backstage scenes and things we're not sure about. One thing that the scene of Phyllis being asked to take notes, I can absolutely believe that, even though I don't know if it actually happened. I have a friend Uh, who was sort of a conservative libertarian feminist woman, went to college in the 1970s. And I remember her telling me that she didn't know how to type. Well, I took a typing class when I was in high school because I I, want to do writing and intellectual. How can I not be a type? She said, it's fine for you because nobody's going to think you're a typist. But a woman who can type, they're going to ask them to type things. And I just want to be able to say, I don't know how to type. She went on to be a lawyer. Uh, she went on to be a, a prosecutor, for better or worse. Um, <laughs> and I, I I didn't ask her if she ever learned to type. I assume she had to type some things. That's actually a social change that's happened with computers, you know. There used mm-hmm. to be a lot of women in offices who were basically typists and stenographers. And then when computers and word processors happened, pretty much the lawyers start writing their own briefs. And so uh, they don't need stenographers and secretaries anymore, though they may still need research assistance and all of that. But more women probably decided to become paralegals or lawyers in that circumstance. Well, there's this you know, funny, it's part of that cultural change. And the funny thing
4: about culture is that culture is a system of agreed upon, kind of broadly shared symbols and signs, signifiers, is that it's invisible to us. By its nature, culture tends to be invisible. And so we, we just kind of assume it is a thing that has been and always was and always will be. And so as the culture is changing, people stop realizing that a thing would have once been considered radical or even radically feminist. I, I thought of this as I was watching – I'm not sure this was put in the show for this purpose. I doubt it was. Uh, when um, uh, Sarah Paulson's character is wandering through the convention uh, high uh, and, like, you know, encountering different evidences of feminism, one of the things she sees is a woman's self-defense class. Um, they're, they're, you know, learning to defend themselves from sexual predators and muggers and, and the like, presumed to be male. It's a reminder that once upon a time, that actually was a very radical thing that women's self defense was a thing that only livers would do because uh, a, a virtuous woman had a man to protect her, could rely on male authorities in the home and in the public to, to protect her. The idea that you would go get dressed in sweats and like learn how to do self defense moves was once considered feminist or kind of a radical act. But by the 1980s, it's it's been routinized. It no longer carries that kind of signaling of radicalism. It's just part of the culture. I mean, I don't know. I grew up around lots of fundamentalist women, very conservative, very religious, very Schlafly-like, and self-defense was just an ordinary thing. It had lost any of that charge. And so it's a it's kind of a reminder that as David and as Kat and we've been talking about how do we define fun, uh, f- feminism? It's a moving target as well. So, if you mean by it is feminism what the national organization for women want, that's one thing. In fact, that's a moving target itself. What you know, first gen suffragettes versus second wave feminist desire—that's a moving target in one way. Uh, is it what people? But another way in which people use feminists is just as a catch-all. Uh, on the right, people often use feminism as a catch-all for things I find alienating about. transformations and societal understandings of gender. And by that definition, that is a constantly moving target such that self-defense reads as feminist in the 70s, but reads as just ordinary, non-radical a decade or two later.
0: Well, Paul, I also think that the term radical itself is a moving target. And I think the show even suggests that at one point, I think uh, this has to be in this later episodes, maybe six or seven, where, um, there's, uh, the feminists of the time period are having a conversation about, um, whether or not they're radical anymore. Um, and I, I can't remember the character's name specifically, but they're talking about, are we radical anymore? Because our ideas have, have reached the middle of America. Are we still radical? And I think that's almost, it's, to me in the show, it almost served as like a inflection point or a reflection, because it's like, if your ideas are no longer considered radical, does that mean you like you changed your hearts and minds? Um, And it was this whole idea that... When she, the character, when she uh, first started out, she went and she used to march and her ideas were seen as radical. And then now she's looking back and she's like, well, now that people agree with me, I don't think my ideas are as radical anymore, Um, which I thought was super interesting. Um, But I also, coming back to this question of whether or not they are radical, I'm under the impression that all feminists in this time period were considered radical. Um, Though watching this show... I didn't view them as radical in our, it like if you put them into our context of our world, does that make sense?
4: Right. Well, it, it feels almost quaint when it's like you feel, you hear these debates that have because the debates have been largely settled and off many of them have been agreed upon across you know political boundaries across ideological boundaries. So some of the debates are like well that doesn't it loses its charge. We have to engage in an act of historical imagination. Absolutely. Because, (laughs) again, yeah, I mean, like even some of the stuff, um, like the debates over uh, the role of lesbians in the National Organization for Women and in feminism more broadly – it's like, come on, Betty, just move on. We've all moved on. Why can't you move on? Like, what's wrong with you? But yeah. we, we forget that they actually were asking a lot of someone who was as old as Betty Friedan was. And there was a generational struggle there that you can see the difference between Bella Abzug and Betty Friedan, who are older, Gloria Steinem and younger voices, there was a very sharp generational divide over what uh, over uh, gay rights within the uh, ERA movement. Um, but I mean, it's as an example of what you're talking about, like, we do have to engage, we have to remember the past is a foreign country and things felt differently to the people uh, at the time.
3: I think that's true, but I think there's also an interesting uh, aspect of that where some of the arguments and some of the tensions and things that you see happening are also still tensions you see. And part of that is Mm -hmm. around the discussion of race or the non-discussion of race as it happens, Mm -hmm. Um, which Mm -hmm. sort of, it, it, it affects, it impacts all aspects of this, right? Because there is the whole aspect of the Eagle Forum being associated with a lot of white nationalist groups, um, either purposefully or not, but there's also a much more subtle aspect of this, right? That are still issues that you hear people talking about in the feminist movement today when they talk about white feminism. So you have, for instance, um, there's a black writer at Ms. Magazine that is supposed to be like the most radical, the most progressive. Right. And she, when she tries to bring up issues, like I am not the voice of all black women. We are different. We have very different experiences, very different things. She immediately gets sort of talked over and you're like, yeah, but we, we're not like that. You don't feel like that. Or Mm -hmm. when she, uh, when she actually quits Ms. Magazine and you can tell she feels uncomfortable even bringing up that point. So she doesn't, she, kind of lies um, and um, uh, saying that it was for the school. She wants to move to Oakland for the school. And her um, and Gloria Steinem's uh, Black partner uh, basically tells her afterwards like, oh, so that's what she told you then. Uh, because it's very clear that it's just that she feels that her voice as a Black woman is spoken over in these circles, right? And you see the same thing happening in Phyllis Schlafly's world, you know, because she may not be, a racist herself. I don't know the woman, but that's sort of depicted that she's comfortable being around racists, but she's not herself a racist, at least um, um, actively so, right? And she has this close relationship with her housekeeper, who's a Black woman. And yet you Mm -hmm. routinely see issues like, for instance, there's this one scene where uh, Phyllis's daughter has not come home from school because she's missed the bus. Phyllis uh, has an appointment, so she tells her housekeeper to get her kid and her housekeeper's like no I'm sorry I can't because I have to pick up my daughter and she basically t- she basically tells her no you do it right? right um and and you still still see people in the feminist movement talking about how a lot of like these feminist ideas of okay we'll just hire a housekeeper just hire a maid etc mm-hmm. still come from this idea that like okay well we'll free the wealthier white women from these constrictions but that's based upon these poor women of color filling in those traditional roles. It's not based upon everybody being equally freed. So I think like there are some aspects like that where those are still radical discussions when they happen nowadays, even as there were radical discussions that were happening at that point.
0: this brings up a good point. I know that race certainly affected the feminist movement during this time period. And it it's in constant tension throughout the show. But I was wondering if anyone can speak to like the accuracy. So I know there was a few points where the KKK was mentioned as like, tangentially accepted by Phil Schaffley's group. Is there any validity to that? Or is it kind of just like thought to have happened that way?
2: One of the things they talked about was whether Phyllis was a member of the John Birch Society, which was not a racist organization. It was a far-right organization. Um, And her biographer said, no, she wasn't. They shouldn't have done that. But then it turns out there are some papers that suggest that she was a member, which is not all that surprising. It was a big organization back in those days, although not acceptable to mainstream conservatives centered around Bill Buckley and Reagan and so on. I would guess, um, from what I can recall and and what I've read, that Phyllis was not in any sense, um, and and other mainstream conservatives were not racist in that sense. But, and and KKK, I think, is probably going too far, but white segregationists, anti-civil rights people in the South Look, if you're gonna if you're gonna raise a conservative banner in the South around 1970, um, you're gonna get people who have still segregationist views. It's changing. There's been a lot of change, but older married women there. Um, I can see the idea of Lottie Beth Hobbs, the southern sort of partner of Phyllis nodding and tacitly understanding that not everybody we work with is going to have the same views on these things that we do.
4: I'll add that the line from the movie Phyllis uh, at one point um, utters where she says, I'm paraphrasing here because I didn't write it down, but uh, I'm not going to question why, what motivates someone to be opposed to the ERA in response to someone, uh, you know, It's during, it's approximate to that um, KKK conversation. Like we don't want to be formally affiliated with the KKK, but I'm not going to question what's in the heart of someone who's opposed to the ERA. Um, That's a, that's a real line. So that someone found that that's actually from her correspondence. Um, And so there is a, there is a um, comfortableness with being a fellow traveler. But as far as her, herself, to some extent, as far as her, herself, I mean, we forget that these are um, – Phyllis Schlafly is a child of the era of the second Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s um, when the second Ku Klux Klan, its primary goals – I mean, it was, it was racist. It was anti-Black. It was – but primarily anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic. Um, and so there was a long history of antagonism between the Ku Klux Klan as an organization and Catholicism. I mean, she and she grows up Catholic. She's Catholic in Missouri, the Upper South where, I mean, clan activity was a real thing. Um, so there was no love lost between committed Catholics and the Ku Klux Klan. They did not get along normally. So it would be, it, it, it's ludicrous to accuse, for them to have accused her of being a member of the clan. of, hey, Phyllis, I see your, you know, your white sheet showing.
3: Right. Yeah, But
4: right. there was, I mean, we can condemn this. There was a willingness to overlook, I mean, kind of, you know, there were members of the stop now organization who also were affiliated with um, white supremacist organizations. They were, some of them were wives of Klansmen. Some were um, uh, themselves involved in, in like the citizens council, which were segregationists, uh, segregationist organization. Um, And, you know, it's one of those things where she just didn't want to appear too closely. She didn't want to know. So, it's it's a kind of a mixed situation,
2: but let me let me let me pick up on that. Um, you use the term fellow traveler there, and that's that's a good term. They were willing to accept fellow travelers who they would not have wanted to endorse the views of. What the show never does, though, is suggest that there might be some fellow traveling and some farther left entanglements of some of the feminists. Phyllis's possible association with reprehensibly far-right organizations are mentioned several times, but Betty Friedan and Bella Abzug had both been in um, circumstances when they were young where they were at very least around members of the Communist Party, um, people who were in fact Stalinists at the time. Whether they actually ever joined the Communist Party, I don't know, but those sorts of things are not mentioned while the uh, the unsavory connections of Schlafly are.
3: I, th- I think you're right there, but they also, they don't completely, uh, just if we stick on the race issue, uh, they do make clear that these women across the board, even if even if they're not actually wantingly being racist, do benefit from that somewhat, right? And that's yeah, something so, that we see yeah, mm-hmm. that's something mm-hmm. we saw historically. As early on as in the first wave of feminism, you have uh, women like Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth repeatedly calling out this idea that um, that feminists that this feminism, that of course they didn't call feminism at, at the time, uh, was predicated upon this idea that white women should do better than Black people, right? So at that period, this is, of course, well before the show, there was a fight where uh, suffragettes were angry, some of them, because Black men were getting a vote before white women. And uh, contemporane- much more contemporaneously to uh, the show, um, although it was sort of petering out a little bit at the time but not really there's a there's a famous feminist slogan from the 60s uh that comes from a court case uh but feminists would say that they're free white and 21 therefore they should have the same rights Mm -hmm. as a man which of course predicates this idea of well because we're white women we should have more rights than black people which i think comes from this idea that there's only so many rights to go around and uh you know a, and this idea that it's insulting to them to that women should be held below these other people who are being held by society. And you kind of have this conversation throughout the show sort of lightly about horizontal hostility or about groups attacking each other within this. And I think that's still something that we see today.
4: That's a great point. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll piggyback on back of that, which is um, this, this issue of... Predic- so, so when I talk about respectability politics earlier, it is always predicated on othering. You identify an outgroup and you establish your respectability by saying, thank God I'm not like one of these. Um, and and so as as Kat pointed out, uh, feminist women in the 60s could use the, the the politics of racial privilege and racial respectability by saying, I'm white, therefore I have a stronger claim to equal rights. Um or and there's another version of this here too, which is going on in the story, which is the role of, of gay rights. So respectability politics are being played on both sides of the ERA divide. Uh, these internal disagreements over uh, does does being straight give one a greater claim to immediacy, at least? Uh, like so should the concerns of gay lesbian of of, of gay members of the of the Pro ERA faction should their concerns and their claims for equal rights be on the front burner or on the back burner? And that that again is there, like so. But Bell Abzug, Betty Friedan said, "Well, no, no. If no. we want to be seen as respectable, we want to get our claims heard and taken seriously. Gay rights needs to go on the back burner again." It's so all respectability politics is about making a claim on the body politic. Um, in a, in a way that's kind of fundamentally discriminatory, whether that's because you're not a missus or because you're not straight or because you're not white. And the show does such an excellent job. I mean, I think the scenes you pointed to, Kat, are just excellent. The one with uh, Schlafly's uh, housekeeper and just showing that in the economy of Phyllis Schlafly, and she's totally unaware of this, she rates the interests of her white children over the interests of the Black children of her housekeeper, or in the scene you describe with the uh, the you know employee at Miss uh, leaving. Um, and I think those those scenes are an excellent encapsulation of, of that internal tension.
0: Well, Paul, it's even interesting that you bring this up. So with everything that's going on, again, we're, we're recording this on June 3rd. So there, there's been a lot of protests across the U.S. because of the death of George Floyd. And something that you were just speaking to actually reminded me of something I saw on social media recently. Um, that someone had shared and it was a quote said equal rights for others does not mean fewer rights for you it's not pie um so it's this whole idea that it's not like um making up a hole and that if you take a percentage of your rights away that gives percentage of rights to someone else that's not how it works um and i think even though this is very relevant in the time period of the show but it's still it's still prevalent today and i think that's also i've said this before but that what's that's what makes some of these um pop culture and other media media forms really resonate with audiences is that it has relevance to your to your life today um and as sad as that is um it's still able it helps us relate to the show and even understand it from a level like um even if you weren't alive during that time period
3: i think looking at equality as a pie or not a pie is a really good uh really good analogy but it also brings up this uh this issue that we we see all the time the the problem is that for a lot of people when they think equality the reason that they see other people getting rights is them having rights taken away is because they're mixing up equality from privilege right so i mean in the more uh, in obviously a very different aspect of this but for instance you'll see folks get really angry about things like star wars having a female heroine right and so people yes. see this as like, <laughs> this is completely unfair. There's no movies with men in them anymore. And of course, fundamentally, the vast majority of movies still have um, still have a man as a lead. But when you look around and when it used to be, it was always you and you always got the first right. And now all of a sudden you have to compete on an even playing field or at least a more even playing field, it does feel like an attack on you, right? And so that's kind of the difference between Mm -hmm. do you care about actually having rights for everybody, or is your conception of rights that you have a leg up over everyone else that largely is being enforced by the state?
4: Well, this is, though, one of the perversities of the political process by its nature, is that in general, that is absolutely true that equal rights... Is not a uh, a pie, a finite pie, and if you get some, someone else doesn't get some. It's not a zero sum game, um, but in the political process, there's only so much political capital and so much political will, and so politics is by its nature a zero sum game. And so, but that's that's. Kind of the ascent. That's why we should keep as much of our lives, as much of society, out from under politics, because it converts things that don't have to be a zero sum game into a zero sum game. Um, and so that's a, just a little cautionary note as we're as we think through this. Is that? Yeah, I mean, we're sympathetic to uh, to the to the you know pro ERA uh, gay voices on that side of the faction today, um, and yet. It was not incorrect that those claims made it less likely for the ERA to pass. And that's because the the the, the logic of the political process converted it into either white feminists get what they want, um, straight feminists get what they want, or gay and black feminists get what they want. And that's a, a flaw of, of politics.
0: Shifting gears a little bit here. So I had always had the impression before I saw this show that Phyllis Schlafly was um, – like evil, I don't know if that's just because of like uh, my <laughs> my like education about her. I, I'm not sure. I'm sure it was one sided. But um, do you think like do you think they painted her in too much of a glowing light in this stance in in the show, or do you think it was like pretty spot on? Because from my perspective, it seemed like she was she was given certainly given more airtime, but like it seemed like they were almost saying that she was like the best part of this time period
1: i agree i was very curious about that because it it certainly is set up like she is like a a protagonist and we're supposed to see her as as flawed but that her triumph at the end is is uh or or her or, or her loss is something we're supposed to sympathize with which is Something I was not expecting from an FX TV show that was about Phyllis Schlafly based on how what I had learned about her. So I'm really curious. I jumping out that question. Do you think that was the goal of the show? And if not, what do you think the goal of the show was?
3: I don't think that was the goal of the show just based upon the last like two minutes of the show where they're talking about the ERA and then they're making this weird political point about how we need to like reinvigorate the fight for the ERA. That said um, I was shocked because going into watching the show I was not expecting to like it because it did seem like it was about Phyllis Schlafly and I have, hate is a strong word, so I don't actually mean it to a full (laughs) extent, but I have hated Phyllis Schlafly since I was 15 and I started reading her stuff and reading the back and forth debates between her and Betty Friedan and stuff like that, largely because as I mentioned before, I've always seen her as a hypocrite. She's someone who fights, uh, she's someone who fights against this idea of women having careers of women being outside the home as her career right if she just wanted to be a housewife she could have been a housewife no one was taking that away from her but she uh created this profession of fighting against professional women right and I actually felt watching the show um I appreciated that it it humanized Phyllis Schlafly and um I felt like it showed a lot of the stuff going on in her own life and how it made me like her a lot more, to be honest. Uh, It made her a lot more of a human character, but um, upon hearing what you two have just said, I'm now wondering if folks who, Maybe haven't done any research or studied uh, on any of the characters in the show for whom this is brand new information. If maybe they would have perceived it quite differently and even seen her in a much more positive light than they would have otherwise. I think I, I just think...
1: like Kate Blanchett, and that is why I like the show so much. <laughs> it's like Phyllis Lafley. Sure, I, I learned more and there's more nuance than what I was expecting before. But at the end of the day, I was like, "But Kate Blanchett, she's she's just a masterful
2: performer." Well, and that's where it seems to me, you know, you ask, is that what they were trying to do? What were they trying to do? Well, the first thing they were trying to do is make a television show that will be interesting. And one of the things actors will often tell you, and I think I heard Kate Blanchett say this, is you don't want to play a character that you can't have any empathy for. So you want to find what it what is the motivation of my character what is she trying to achieve So I found the show clearly Schlafly is not the heroine she's the she is the protagonist because there's like five feminists who uh, are her rivals um, but I thought the show was less biased against Phyllis Schlafly than I expected and maybe many other people were hoping it would be really biased hmm. and were disappointed in that. (laughs) Um, My memory of Phyllis Schlafly from the conservative movement is that, you know, she was a fairly standard Reagan-Buckley, Goldwater-Reagan-Buckley conservative, uh, but she got into really into the social issues. She was a free marketer in the sense that Reagan and Buckley were, but her original interest was building up national defense and nuclear weapons. And then she got into the ERA, which then did get her into also uh, the uh, anti-gay marriage and so on eventually. So on all the issues where I have sympathy for conservatives, that wasn't really what she was interested in, but I still see her as the same kind of conservative as the Reagan-Buckley crowd and therefore I don't think those, I don't hate those people. I think they're wrong about a lot of things. Uh, But the left was also wrong about a lot of things. Bella Abzug, for instance, was, when she came to Congress, she was like the most pushy, belligerent, left wing member of Congress. And so it's interesting in the show to see that among the feminists, she's the practical politician. She's the one who says, this is how much we can get. Now, she thought Shirley Chisholm was standing in the way of George McGovern winning the election, so she wasn't necessarily a perceptive politician, but she did understand sort of how you work the back rooms and the trade-offs, and we can go this far, but we can't go this far. Um, and so so it changed my opinion of Bella Abzug, who I just remembered in my mind as a uh, crazy left winger. Um and now it turns out, well, actually pretty sharp politician too.
3: It's interesting to me as well that you talk about uh that you talk about how uh, Phyllis Schlafly, your perception of her as her contemporary or closer to her contemporary, she was alive during my period, but always as a very much old woman or older woman. Um, but um it's interesting to me because as I rewatched the shows past weekend and I, the thing that I noticed the most was that despite the fact that I've always disliked Phyllis Schlafly and really disliked, uh, her ideas, just watching her day-to-day life and how, as like, as a woman who's, uh, sort of involved in these political circles, sort of involved in sometimes conservative political circles as a libertarian, I kind of flip between the left and the right, depending on the issue, um, I actually thought that of all of the characters, her actual life was most similar to mine. I find her the character that I was most easy, uh, that was most easy for me to relate to just as a woman living my life, which I thought was really interesting to me as really humanized her character.
4: Well, I had this, I I, I want to outrage Natalie for a second because I told her before the show that uh, Phyllis Schlafly reminded me of her. (laughs) Which is great because I just said she was evil. (laughs) (laughs) But like not, not Phyllis Schlafly of the show because she's in her forties when the show starts. Um, it's the the actual bio of Phyllis Schlafly. So, I mean, she she is someone who went to college on scholarship, um, worked her way through college, went to D.C. during the heady days of 1945, worked at a think tank when she was 21, 2021. Um, she you know, ran a cam- campaign manager at 22 for a congressional candidate. So I don't know someone who immediately finished college went to a think tank and showed herself to be like very proficient at administration and running things. It sounds kind of like Natalie to me. So <laughs> yeah, that,
0: I, I hear you. I yeah, hear you. Yeah. Ha ha ha. Yeah.
4: But, but what I'll say, <laughs> what I'll say is this uh, props to Davi Waller, who's the writer of the show um, who avoided, I think a pitfall that's so common in Hollywood, which is that they don't really have a great literary sense all too often. Um, which is that there is a temptation to create not literature, but pulp. And the pulp is simple morality tales. There's the, there's the, you know, it's, it's like the old Western. You have, you have the good white hat cowboy versus the bad black hat cowboy or uh, Native Americans or Indians. Um, Simple morality tales with clear, good, clear, bad. That is the temptation of Hollywood. So the easiest thing she could have done would have been to write this story with, which is focused on the pro ERA side and Phil Schlafly only shows up as kind of a stock evil uh, character and antagonist who you never actually examine the interior life of. And what she does is she humanizes her, uh, which is good because first of all, that's just how life works. That's what history is. People are, are human. Even bad people are human. They have interior lives, uh, character arcs. (laughs) We all have character arcs. and also, it turns out that in real life, no one is 100% correct or thinks of everything. Um, so, you know, think of when you like a superhero movie, you like the ones where you have a robust. Uh, uh, villain who is at least partially maybe maybe not right but you kind of understand them you like you like Thanos not because you think he should have killed half of all living creatures in the universe but his point his point was to try to save the environment because there's too many people consuming too many resources and so there was lots of think pieces after that saying oh well I don't agree with him He went too far, but like he's not as ludicrously cartoonishly villain villainous as other stock Marvel villains. And so Davi Waller avoided the easy road here and wrote um, a story that that actually humanizes Phyllis Schlafly, even though I think it's very clear she disagrees with her in the story. And that's that's props. That's good writing. That's writing film as literature. And uh, she did that here
3: the film is literature idea is really interesting to me uh we didn't really talk a lot about Alice McRae who's um Phyllis Schlafly's best friend in the show and is actually a composite character she doesn't exist and yeah, she, uh she yeah. doesn't exist and so when I started watching the show I was like okay yeah so she's sort of an easy plot device uh she kind of acts a little bit uh she she brings up ideas she kind of is that thing to vocalize the a lot of what might've been going on inside of Phyllis Schlafly's head to get her to do these things. Right. And then I was like, okay, maybe she's playing more the role of the conscience. But as I finished the series, I realized she's actually the, she's representative of the average American woman of the time. Right. So you start out (laughs) with, she's the one telling Phyllis Schlafly, she's frightened that her life is under attack, that uh, she can't be a housewife, et cetera. And, um, and then over time, she shifts, right? And the big pivotal moment for her character is when she goes to this women's convention and all of a sudden she's exposed to all of these ideas, as Paul mentioned, that she'd never seen before. And it changes her life and it gets her to think about things differently towards the end where she breaks off from Phyllis Schlafly. And she even tells Phyllis Schlafly, she's got a job now, uh, which is a completely different character from the one at the beginning, who started this whole movement not wanting a job. But now she's saying uh, she feels empowered not having to ask her husband for pin money. And um, Phyllis Schlafly, there's this uh, great moment where um, Phyllis is sort of hurt. And she says, you used to feel empowered by me, not the feminist movement. And uh, Alice, who's again, this composite character says, I wasn't empowered, I was scared. And so, so that's, that was just like the most literary aspect, I think, of the show for me. And it was so powerful and so cool.
0: I, I agree with that. I think especially throwing it in, which makes me think this goes back to Landry's point earlier about what the purpose of the show was or what they were trying to convey. That scene went very well into the end where um, you see Phyllis Shaffley in her kitchen um, being that homemaker role. And then it quickly transitions to like a ex- explanatory, of uh, um, a few scenes where they show the f- States recently that have ratified the ERA, Virginia being the most recent one. Um, and I think that was that those probably last 10 minutes are what basically made me seem like, okay, they weren't actually trying to, um, they weren't trying to uh, overglow Phyllis Schaffley. They They do t- still had a point here towards the end. And I think that's really interesting that you think she represents, um, Alice represents the kind of like mainstream woman or the typical woman of that time period. Um, because I think that actually fits pretty perfectly.
1: And now for the time in the show where we share the media we've been consuming in our downtime, other than our topic. This is locked
2: in david paul kat what have you been enjoying i've been so busy working and reading the newspapers and everything that uh is being written these days about contemporary affairs i don't feel like i've consumed that much pop culture but i'll name you a couple of things um I very much enjoyed reading another book about conservative history, The Radio Right by Paul (laughs) Matzko. That's that's a good book. I urge you to read it. Um, I also watched the TV show Belgravia, um, about which all you really have to say is, if you like Downton Abbey, then you should watch Belgravia. Uh, It's set 100 years earlier. Um, It's not particularly related to our topic here, although... One interesting aspect is it does reflect the rising commercial class in England um, bumping up against the established aristocracy and the conflicts that that creates. Uh, one more thing, I rewatched a movie from the 1940s called I Know Where I'm Going, and it's about a young woman who's always known where she's going. <laughs> um, and indeed, she's about Phyllis Schlafly's age because she was about to get married uh, during World War II. And eventually, the conflict for her is which man to marry. There's no discussion of a career, It's although she's, she's working at that point. But eventually, she has to decide which man to marry. But still, if there was anyone about whom it could have been said, I know where I'm going. I guess it would have been Phyllis Schlafly, as well as people like Bella Abzug.
4: All Second Belgravia and I enjoyed that as well. Um another show I actually only saw because I subscribed to Hulu so I could watch Mrs America was The Great about Catherine the Great and it's a uh, it is is almost you know it's like ninety percent fictionalized. I mean it's it's very um, they're very free. So don't go t- to it for an accurate portrayal of uh, Catherine the Great, who in reality was actually less reform minded than Peter. For those who watch the show, Peter, uh, her uh, who she deposes and has murdered, possibly. Um, spoiler alert! But uh, Catherine uh, the Great, they just uh, excellent acting. Nicholas Holt is Peter, and I mean, every line out of his mouth just. Slays. It's just very well done. Um, and I suppose I should, since uh, David mentioned it, I'll 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 be that guy and I'll promote my own book. And it's actually fitting to Schlafly. So my book, The Radio Rights, with Oxford University Press. Uh hardcover comes out June 16th. Uh the Kindle version's out now. But there is um one of the very uh, important themes in, in the setup of the book is the role of housewife populism, to use Michelle Nickerson. She's a historian, Michelle Nickerson's term, is that um, uh, the the right, modern conservatism, often when we talk about it, it's the conservatism of Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan and William F. Buckley and Russell T. Kirk, et cetera, all these men, uh, intellectuals, politicians. But the reality is – the grassroots new right is a woman's movement. It is as much a women's movement as what we call the women's movement. Um, and you see that in the show in Mrs. America where it's like, which one is the women's movement? Well, they both are. Uh, which one's looking out for the interest of women? That's another question. But which one is propelled by women? Both. And the same thing's true of the new right. All these people who are listening to the right-wing broadcasters I write about, they are disproportionately middle-aged suburban misses. And they use that respectability politics to do all kinds of crazy stuff I described in my book, like uh, boycotts and card parties. And they're so annoying that uh, JFK and his uh, private correspondence, uh, internal correspondence, um, complains about these basically uppity women who are giving him a hard time and threatening his reelection in 64, which leads him to launch the greatest campaign of um, government censorship of the last half century targeting right-wing radio. So go go check out that book. You'll, there's more schlafly-like women populating it, and uh, it's an enjoyable time.
3: Uh, yeah, I have a great recommendation. It's another TV show, um, and I wasn't sure if I would like it as at first, just based upon the age group that it seemed to be aimed at, but never have I ever um it's it's a Netflix show. It's created by Min, uh, Mindy Kaling. Um and it's about this uh this young girl in California starting high school. She's an Indian American girl. Um and her father passed away recently. And so it's just her, her mother, who's of course an immigrant from India. Um and her cousin who grew up in India. And has now come to stay with them so that she can attend college in the United States. And so I I will say that as as a young Indian American girl who grew up between India and the U.S., um, seeing that this show, and who, while I was growing up, never saw any Indians on TV, except for Apu from The Simpsons, um, seeing that this show was rated number one on Netflix... Uh, was just like, it was amazing. Like, I can't explain how great I felt that people would watch this. And it's interesting and it's sort of very similar to Mrs. America in a weird way in that it sort of really focuses on these women and their role in society. Um, And it is, it's a young girl in high school. And particularly for me, as someone who sort of grew up in the United States, also with a lot of time of my life spent in India and at that age group, where I'm between the daughter's age and the mother's age pretty equally. Uh, it was really interesting for me to look at this immigrant story and the story of being young and struggling with your identity um, as, as a first generation American. And I really recommend it. Um, I will tell you that it gets a couple extra bonus points for me because. Um, Usually when people think about Indians um, outside of India, you mainly just see North, uh, North Northern Indian uh, cultures reflected. And the first moment I noticed was when her, her mother makes a comment to her in Thummer, which is actually my first language. Um, and like that that just really clicked for me. And of course it makes sense. Mindy Kaling um, is Thummer herself. Of course, that's her stage name. Her real name is uh, Mindy Chokalingam, which is an incredibly uh, Thummer name. She changed it her first time doing stand-up when the the stand-up comedian uh, ahead of her made his entire set about making fun of her name. She decided to never go by it again. But uh, it's really interesting to see. You can see Mindy's reflections on her life kind of come through and also to think about the American immigrant story and what it means to be American.
0: That sounds like a great show. I'll have to add that to my list. Um, I've been so... Other than watching X Files for a previous recording, <laughs> um, I have uh, been going back on some old movies that are on Netflix. Um, mainly just some comedies, some Will Ferrell movies. Um, my significant other is currently deployed overseas, so I've been using this great—I um, guess it's a Chrome, se- a Chrome extension called uh, Scener, where we can actually like watch movies together, and it syncs our um, computer screen, so it syncs our Netflix. Together, So that we're like watching the movie simultaneously. Um, and it's really great. Cause you can also video chat and like, there's a little chat box there too, that you can like talk about the movie and stuff. Um, so, so far we watched like the other guys, which I forgot was absolutely hysterical. Um, great Will Ferrell, <laughs> great Will Ferrell and uh, Wahlberg performance. Um, and then I also have been going back. Me, and my housemates have been going back and watching some like some good rom-coms. Um, so we did Life as We Know It this week. Uh, we try to do The Titanic, but apparently one of my favorite movies, I might add, though I have not found a way to bring it onto Pop and Lock yet. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah um you have to purchase titanic so we didn't want to purchase it but um yeah so i've just been kind of going back th- through some old movies i haven't started in a new tv show yet but seems like never have i ever might be the next on the list
4: if uh natalie if you like uh like buddy cop you know two guys acting silly yeah <laughs> uh, if you like the other guys you know what is the the er example of that genre is the nice guys with russell crowe and ryan gosling Huh. hilarious. I not seen that one. Oh okay. yeah. It, it didn't get, it didn't do all that well in theaters. It kind of was a underrated gem it is utterly hilarious. So try that one out. Okay.
1: <laughs> uh, with my free time, I have uh, well following the recent protests, following the death of George Floyd and everything. I've been trying to beef up on some literature that people have been suggesting, and sort of re uh, reinvest some time in reading about those kind of issues. So I've been reading uh, Stamp from the Beginning" by Ibram X. Kendi, uh, which is very, very good. It's a it's a, a longer read, but it's it's well worth it. Um, he also came out with a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist, I believe earlier this year, um, but I haven't cracked that one open yet. I'm also reading The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which is very, very interesting, and I think our libertarian audience will really, really enjoy it. Um, for fiction, uh, the, uh, the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, uh, is just phenomenal, uh, winner, I believe, of the National Book Award, and sort of a fictionalized, telling uh a a magical realist uh where the underground railroad uh manifests as an actual rail rail system where people ride cars and and ride it to different cities and meet with other people there um but it is highly researched and based in that time period. So while it, there are like elements of magical realism, it is extremely accurate and based in on reality in other senses. So I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, another book by Colson Whitehead that is, um, that, that I think one, it was it the Pulitzer recently the national book award is the nickel boys uh, about uh, a state run school um, and a, set of basically murders that happened there, uh, and, and abuse that was covered up. Um, so the uh, heavy reads, but, but well worth it. Um, for a little more light fare, uh, I, I have been watching these YouTube videos by this, uh, presenter, uh, based in the UK named Tom Scott, and he has a series called Things You Might Not Know. Um, and he, he's also hosted qi uh on the bbc for or, or presented on it for a while and he is a, he's trained as a linguist uh, but it like videos about odd physics phenomena and crazy places in the world and why language functions in in certain ways um and like really basic uh Stuff that you wouldn't normally think about, and it's in really bite sized uh, segments and videos. Um, and he's a, a, a funny guy, and he breaks down complex topics in an entertaining way. So uh, I highly recommend Tom Scott if you're looking for uh, a, a fun uh, intellectual thing that you can digest rather quickly as well. And I also watched uh, Kiki's Delivery Service over the weekend, which is just a, a delight.
0: Thanks for listening. As the miniseries showed, Phyllis Schlafly built her career advocating for traditional women's roles and mobilizing conservative opposition to the women's liberation movement. The historical importance of this story is often lost, like many other pivotal times in our history. If you agree, be sure to let us know on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's pop, the letter N, lock with an E, pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by Landry Ayers as a project of Libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.